This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. PT, mm-hmm. when I say hard, it's I walked 500 feet, or I did the bike too that day, or I sat up in bed, you know, just simple things that people take for granted every day. But sitting up in bed is, that was PT. Mm-hmm. I did it for five minutes, I was exhausted after. But the next day they'd be like, oh, we, we turned down your, your dent, you're down to 60% today. So it's like, okay, this is, I'm, it's doing something. Right. Yeah. That, that reassurance from the staff of saying your PT is a reflection on your values, your blood work, your event settings, your ECMO, you turn down your sweep, just all that stuff. You know, so that was those little things of them reminding you of your values are getting better keeps you pushing. I think, um, you know, nursing 101, we learned that when someone's on a medical floor and has pneumonia, that they need to get up and walk because it helps their lungs get better. But once someone's crossed the line and is into the ICU, we forget that basic concept that mobility is medicine, that moving helps the lungs. Yeah. Um, and I actually haven't worked with a lot of ECMO, so I just, I underestimate how much it still helps. Even when you're on ECMO bypass machine, you're still you experience that the more physical activity activity you did, the better your lungs got. The only thing I didn't like was uh, soon as I was done with PT, I had to be suctioned like every, mm. I don't know, 15 minutes. But they're like, this is good. You're getting all the, the junk out of your lungs, right? And then after I was done coughing for an hour, then I felt better. Right. You know, like you just, you knew your lungs were repairing themselves. Essentially, and that's part of our um, one of our barriers is people feel like patients have to be sedated because they're going to be coughing and uncomfortable in the tube. When in reality, coughing mobilizes the secretion so you can actually suction them out yeah. and they can inflate more and get better. And so, that's what I see too when, patient, when patients walk. We suction so much stuff out, but yeah. when they're sedated in, in one spot the whole time, those secretions can just consolidate, they get stuck, they, yeah. they're they just, they're lingering longer. And so, yeah, that's a really important point. Yeah, it's, um, it sucked, but we feel better. Literally sucked. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and it's still pretty rare to walk on ECMO. Um, you know, if I bring up early mobility and talk about what we do with our patients, um, a lot of nurses around the country will scoff and say, well, your patients aren't on ECMO, they're not that sick. <laughs> and so now I use your story and I say, well, you know, it's still a, the concept still remains. Yeah. Um, so what does it mean to you to know that you ended up serendipitously enough in a facility where you were awake and walking on ECMO? It took a while to, I mean, I, I heard about ECMO before I got sick just briefly through um, 
coworkers that fly and deal with ECMO patients, but I didn't look into it. I didn't feel the need to research it. It's just not in my our profession. But as I sat there and laid in bed, I was like, okay, I'm on ECMO. What does this thing do? Why am I on it? You know, and it took a while to understand actually what it was. And then I, as soon as I realized everything it does and why I'm on it, I, it freaked me out, right? I'm walking with one of the most advanced life support systems out there. Your lifeline. Yeah. And there's, I don't know how many people does it take to get me to walk. There is. It was at least five. Yeah. Maybe three if we, towards the end, when you were a little more stable. And that's with Amber walking behind me with the wheelchair in mm -hmm. case I need to sit down. So just to know why is on it, how it works, it gave me a lot of anxiety to think that this is it. This is what's keeping me alive. And if it fails or I throw a clot, PE, or a stroke, which I did, I had a stroke from it. Um, and I had multiple um, DBTs that I was dealing with too at the same time. So it was, it was good to know that we have that here in Utah. We're lucky, we're fortunate enough to have it. We can be home for the family. But um, it's definitely a lot of anxiety with it. And then they're telling us that only a few people walk on it, let alone, I don't know, it's, 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 it's weird. And, she, and I asked her, because I, I can't see it, all I know is the right side of my head feels heavy, I see tubes going in the machine, I tell her, I'm like, will you take a picture of it for me? And she was very nervous to, to show me. <laughs> well, and when he walked on ECMO the first time, I was like, we were walking through the halls and, you know, it's a busy ICU floor and all the nurses aren't even like carrying, not carrying, but not even like second guessing him walking on ECMO where I'm just like, look at him, look at him, he's walking. And they're just like, well, we probably see it every day. And that's true. They probably just see that every day. So to them, it wasn't anything. But to me, it was just like, oh my gosh, see those huge tubes? Like he's walking with that. And, but it was also nice to know that he was exactly where he needed to be. Um, so after your, how long were you on ECMO for? Two months? No, December 16th to January 4th. Oh, okay. And then he, after that, he did rehab till January 31st. And then he came home. So... Um, you were a firefighter before, yep. extremely physical, mental, um, statistically about a third of all ICU patients that aren't even as sick as you are not back to work 60 months after discharge. Where are you at now and how did that happen? Um, I got home on January 31st. Started doing um, PT just at an outside facility and at home. And then around probably the end of February, um, fortunate enough to have my work have a day position, we call them, or just five days a week, eight to five, right? Just doing desk work. Um, so I was able to do that for about two months. Um, they still were very helpful with getting my appointments, going to PT, and then we have a department of physical that we have to pass once a year. And 
of course, they were concerned with my pulmonary function and my ejection fraction. Mm-hmm. I passed everything else. My blood work was fine. And they were concerned about being on the blood thinner, right? Mm-hmm. So I was able to get off the blood thinner. Uh, my ejection fraction at that time, when I passed it, which was in May 2019, um, was 45%. So it was just at basically the cutoff to go back to work. My pulmonary function when I was healthy, um, which was a year ago from that date, I was at 110% for my age, gender, weight. Uh-huh. So I was above normal. And when I did it that day, I was at 80%. So I lost about 30% function, but it was still eligible enough to go back to work. So I went back to work in May, May-ish of 2019. So you were back to being a full firefighter yeah. four months yeah. after getting home from rehab. Yeah. And what's your position now? I am a station captain, which is just basically a supervisor over a crew. What kind of cognitive demands does that have? Um, it's, it's this, I would say it's the same because before I was a paramedic firefighter, so I was running the medical calls with the with the crew and making decisions and you know dealing with time management and all that issue. So it's it's basically the same thing. Now, now I'm just responsible for five people. Just the stress of that that comes with the position, you know. So Amber's the one to ask if I have any cognitive issues. She's <laughs> <laughs> No, you had them before. You have them now. (laughs) (laughs) But, but you know, for an art survivor, I think you know, out of anyone, um, all arts—not just those that have ECMO—all arts, even those that weren't as sick as you got, forty to eighty percent have severe cognitive deficits a year post discharge. Do you have any cognitive deficits? I don't feel like it. Like they started talking about that stuff when we were at the U, especially after I had my stroke. And um, the neurologists that constantly were checking on me and doing CT scans and MRIs and just making sure things aren't changing or getting worse. The part of my brain that would be cause issues was going to be my sense of direction. So my north, south, east, west, my mm-hmm. cardinal directions, they said, probably going to have some issues with that. Um, but I never have. I haven't ended up in Ogden for some strange reason. I thought it was home, you know. <laughs> so it, that cleared up within, I don't know, two months. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. 
Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. What role do you think occupational therapy played or cognitive therapy? That was, that's, that was interesting to go through that because I wasn't expecting to do any of it, right? Um, and speech therapy too, but that's different. Um, so the PT... <laughs> Yeah, PT was, the, you know, the physical part was normal for me, but to do the occupational, the cognitive skills where, hey, you're going to stand at this table and we're going to play dominoes for 20 minutes. I'm just like, why are we doing this? This is, <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know? And then I would play the Wii game system, you know, and do virtual reality things. And I would do puzzles that our six-year-old does. I'm like, what? And they explain, you know, you just got to keep your brain going, keep it functioning, don't, you can't let it get sedentary. And so it made sense, you know, because I, I, I don't know where I'm going with that. But. Well, what do you think that means for your life now? <laughs> oh, I appreciate it. You know, it, make, it makes complete sense that it's just as important as physical. Because in reality, that place being in there, confined for two, three months, it's a just mentally draining, you know. Staring at the same walls. Yeah, the same window, the same people that, you know. There's one day that we were able to go outside for the first time, and it was like the middle of January, and it was cold, and the weather was bad, and I didn't care. I just like, we need to get outside. Mm. And I was in shorts and a T-shirt, and they were all bundled up, and I was like, I don't, I just want to see that here. <laughs> <Not very. laughs> it was mentally like that day, I remember so well. I'm like, gosh, it felt good to get outside. Hmm. Just mentally, I felt better, you know. Um, um, and such a high percentage of survivors have PTSD. Um, you know, the rates fluctuate so much, I think, because we not everyone gets tracked or diagnosed with it. But, you know, 40-plus percent have PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have PTSD? I haven't been, like, told I have it. But just knowing with my profession and dealing with, you know, our patients that we see with PTSD and then just researching because we're, we're always getting asked if, you know, after traumatic calls or dealing with issues at work, you know, we're, we're very aware of what PTSD is. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- I'm, I'm pretty sure I have it now. You know, I, I can't say I don't have it. Yeah. Because every day I think about it. Mm-hmm. Every patient we go on that has a severe cold or infection, I'm like, oh, I don't want to get that, right? Because I don't want to go back to the hospital. Um, it is a fear of mine to get sick again and be in the hospital again. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm so appreciative of life now, even more than I was before. I'm not depressed. I'm not suicidal. I'm not, there's some anxiety with it, right? Um, like triggers are when we get a patient that is being innovated. I don't want to watch or be involved. Hmm. You know, um, when we go on a patient that's having severe respiratory problems, I, I want to help them so bad. You know, I want them, I want to get rid of their anxiety because I know what they're going through. Mm-hmm. Um, so those patients, I, I feel more more attached to just help and get them feeling better. Invested too. Um, but, you know, with the PTSD thing, it's occasional flashbacks of just zoning out for a minute and replaying a scenario that happened at the hospital or something, right? Whether it was a procedure or just walking on ECMO or, you know, just dealing with any issue that happened. It happens a lot. Yeah. You know? 
Um, I don't know how much it affects our family life or work life, but I feel like things are good, you know. Um, for the most part, it's just the constant everyday reminders. And I feel like it's still so new. I mean, this week is our like year mark for me being discharged. And I just feel like we talk about it so much daily, just me and Tyler, that it's still such a constant thing for us just to talk about. And but I feel like eventually that will fade away, that we won't be so engulfed in it still. But I think there's little things like even for me, like the sound of a beeping or something that makes me even like, I don't want to think about that. But the winter month, like I'm done with winter. I don't want to deal with winter anymore for whatever reason. There's so many memories. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And PTSD and family members is real too. Yeah. Yeah. And, And speaking of that, um, it's, when we go on calls, right, my, now my crew deals with the patient directly, takes care of them, and my role is to deal with family, kind of be mm-hmm. the liaison. And um, for the most part, our, we're really good with keeping the family informed and things of what's going on, but now I feel like I'm really involved. I want to tell them everything that's going on. Let them know we're doing everything the best we can, just keeping them up to date because it was so important to Amber. I don't know how many times she's told me of you guys just keeping her up to date giving her the truth of expectations and the reality of it. When we started an ICU diary, mm-hmm. um, I didn't know how sick Tyler was going to get. I knew he was sick at that moment, but he was 32 and healthy. And I just, I'm a, logically I knew, I just thought he would just turn around and walk out in a couple of days. Yeah. Um, but I remember having the distinct impression that you had to have an ICU diary. Yeah. And it was an awesome gift that I think benefited Tyler, but it also benefited us family because I enjoyed writing it every day. It was like my journal, but there was also like healthcare workers like you and a few doctors and other nurses that would, that have written something in it. And it was nice because your guys' terminology compared to mine was like, he appreciated your guys' stuff so much more where mine was just like, the kids miss you. I miss you. Today's hard. But I think he enjoyed reading back on what you guys had to say because everything was, you know, precise and exactly in medical terms where mine was mumble jumbled. And I appreciated every nurse or doctor that wanted to write in it because it was actually really meaningful. And it was therapeutic for you. Did you feel like you were communicating with him? I did a lot. Like everything is that I wrote was geared towards him. Like he was going to read it that night or something. Mm. And Looking back, it's hard to read because it's very much was like my journal, but everyone that came into the room would sign it, and it was it's pretty awesome to look back for him. He didn't know a lot of people visited, and then he would read what they wrote, and I was like, oh, yeah, they came and saw you. So, Like a guest book. Yeah. <laughs> what did it mean for a you, Tyler, book. to have that ICU diary? It was very good knowing that how much support – Amber had why I was sedated and just not able to function. It was hard to read too. Like, wow, you're really sick. Like, I can't imagine being on Amber's side of it and going through all of that. That mm-hmm. I have no idea what's going on. Right? Mm-hmm. 
like if we switch spots, I don't think I can do everything she did. She was amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I was a witness. She was amazing. Yeah. Oh, just to you. run life at home mm-hmm. and at the hospital, just there's no way. Like it was, it's unbelievable. And the support system she had was awesome. All her friends and family. So, and to read it from the healthcare worker point of view too, with my medical background knowledge is awesome to read about. Like, man, I just was not getting better. Like, why wasn't I getting better? And then there were days where like I was getting better. And then the next person I came, I was like, well, you had a good night, but now you're not having a good day. And it's like, how are you guys dealing with all this? So it was really interesting just to, just to grasp everything because there's that period of time, you know, the 16 days I was out, I, you know, and, and co- like one of the coworkers was like, you were 16 days of your life was just gone. You weren't like you weren't here and life functioned without you and things kept moving and you just weren't here. And now you're here. Like, I don't know what to say to that. You know, uh, some survivors yeah. say that part of their PTSD is from that lost time. Yeah. Like it's just, and I can feel it. Like it just feels weird. Like I missed out on something. Hmm. And that still bothers you. <laughs> Not bad. It's just the thought in your head. Like it's just so weird, right? Like I mean, you sleep for eight hours and it's just another night gone, but this was 16 days worth. Right. Yeah. And it could have been weeks more, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I have to ask even patients while they're intubated, would you have rather have been sedated the whole time? There was like when I first woke up and I realized there's a tube in my throat, I could feel it with my tongue. I'm just like, oh, things are not good. Like why am I intubated? You know, but then I was like, okay, I gotta be, I don't know if this is just from my medical background. Like I told myself things aren't good, but stay calm. Whatever's going on, they're taking care of me, you know, but I still had anxiety about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it came to me talking to you about, you know, like, I'd rather have those anxiety meds and the pain meds because the pain meds are just so hard coming off and getting on those high dose narcotics that just make you feel horrible. Mm-hmm. But they just the small dose of anti-anxiety meds just kind of eased everything. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things to give actually. It's just the, just a small dose, just the yeah. Get the edge off, but not so much that they're sedated because once you give them too much anti-anxiety, then yeah. they can't walk and their progress decreases. And also, I don't know if you experienced, what did walking do or mobility do for your anxiety? It really did. Just like the studies say, you know, you, if you're stressed out, go work out, get all that tension out of your body and you feel better. And that's how it was. It, it kept your mind off of what was going on and, you just felt better afterwards. Yeah, I had a patient say, um, she was saying that she had anxiety and we kind of dissected it. And it was, she was anxious because she was tired of looking at the same walls 24-7. Yeah. Change of scenery needed. Yeah. And so then she realized, and she wrote down on paper, she said, I don't need meds, I need to walk. And I said, let's do it. <laughs> you know, we'll do it. Yeah. yeah. That's the other thing that um, had was, this, I don't even know what her job title was, but she would come in every week or so and say, would you like some magazines? Would you like to play the Xbox? You want some board games? You want a deck of cards? Just to change the atmosphere because sitting on that bed day after day, minute after minute, it's mentally just draining. Yeah. And I changed his room. Well, we changed it once and we had three room changes, which I think helped. Oh, yeah. 
helped me, helped you, and that was nice to be able to get a different view space. That's a good point. uh, In the CBIC, did they change rooms for a reason or just for the purpose of? For the purpose of giving him a different area. Oh, they're good. Yeah. We're going to interview them later, too. (laughs) And and I appreciated, I I, I figured out the nurse's schedule, right? I knew Mm -hmm. the nurse's schedule, I knew the doctor's schedule, I knew who was on and off, and they communicated with me really well. I would have the same nurse, morning nurse and night nurse, for three or four days, right? It was their Mm -hmm. schedule. So I had the same nurse, which was awesome because I got to know them, they got to know me, they knew where I was, where I wasn't. So that was awesome. Because if I would have had a different nurse every single day, mm-hmm. it was just, how did they know what's going on? Oh, that's such a good point. I, I'm a big believer in continuity. Yeah. Um, at least in my own schedule, I feel like I take better care of people when I actually know them, but especially for nurses too. Yeah. It would be a sigh of relief, I'd see. And I would sometimes it'd be their four day that they just spent with me, and they'd be like, well, I'll see you in next week on Tuesday. And then be six days away, I'm just like, oh, really? But oftentimes, those are the the kind of nurses that are texting their coworkers saying, Hey, how's room 32 Mm -hmm. doing? Yeah. Yeah. Because they genuinely care. And and when you can interact with a patient, you feel more connected with them, obviously. But Mm -hmm. when someone's totally sedated or totally delirious, you you don't know who they are. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there are always concerns of how hard it is to care for a patient that's awake. But once you get over the delirium, yeah. your, your story shows that you can really be calm, cope, go th- understand what's going on, work with it, and then you connect with staff. And at least my, my coworkers say how much they appreciate actually getting to know patients, that their work means something because they know who they're taking care of. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts? <laughs> um, something that I wanted to add was things that meant a lot to me were – when you and other nurses and staff gave me an example, not a like a detailed example, just when he was getting prone and you sat down and said, you know, he's very sick. This is, you know, the reality of it, but this is helpful. This has been proven to show, you know, people come out of this and it's better and it helps and this is the right way to go. And I needed that example. And when we were on ECMO, I was able to sit down with a patient that was actually doing like a, you know, like a, I don't know, what would you call it? A, he was tutoring or something, one of the physical therapists, but he was an ECMO survivor. And he had a story identical to Tyler's. And he was there that week only. And I was like, he is here for a reason. So he sat down with me and just told me his whole story and gave me hope. And then his, his outcome was just like Tyler's. And then there was a few nurses that would sit down and say, this is going to be okay. You know, this is, we see this, he can do this. They just gave me hope. And even if it was false hope in a sense, even if they had like some type of story of any past patient that they can give to give hope, I feel like it's needed. Even if the family doesn't ask for it, just give it because I like lived for those things. You know, I just needed something in my mind to say, okay, that person did it, Tyler can do it. Or, you know, this guy, he was same age as Tyler, you can do it. And it's just, I don't think healthcare providers 
realize like how easy that is to do, but how beneficial it is. And so if I could like give any advice for them is to just give hope, you know, and I mean, they still have to give the reality of it too. But if you just give both, I think, because when he was prone, it was such a hard day for me to find out we were doing that, you know, but you sat down and laid it out for me. And after that, I just felt completely like, you know, it's going to be okay. Hmm. And so I feel like that's the biggest thing that I would say to, you know, a nurse or a doctor or anybody is to give hope. I love that. Yeah. So it was, it's like I do more, um, bad bidding than, than giving hope. <laughs> so that's, that's good to hear. Well, it's nice to hear, you know, the reality because you want that too. You don't want to think that everything's perfect, but you just have to have something to hold on to just some type of situation where you say, okay, this isn't impossible. This isn't, you know, like never going to happen. Um, and it sounds like in the BICU that they were talking about discharge things about possible cognitive deficits, PTSD. I mean, did that help? Did you feel like you went home prepared for what was to come? I don't know if you could be fully prepared to be ready to take care of yourself at home, even prepare Amber to deal with what we were going to deal with when we got home. Right. Um, I think, um, there could have been a better job with that. Even with the, the PTSD portion of, I think there should have been more counseling sessions one-on-one -on -one during the ICU visit, right? Oh. You have your respiratory therapist, you got your nurse, you got your doctor, you got your um, PT people. But I only talked to a counselor maybe once or twice. I was in rehab, right? When I could talk and I had my speaking valve. I just wonder if having an educator counselor in there just to discuss like, Hey, let's talk about ICU delirium. Let's talk about PTSD. Let's talk about hallucinations. Let's, how are you feeling today? What's your anxiety level? Like? What's your depression? Like, because all those things, I just would sit there and be like, am I okay? Is this normal? Yeah. Right? Should it be like this? Right. Yeah. Just the, the constant worry or maybe I'm just thinking too much, you know? And so, and then at the same, and it has to be somebody that's very familiar with ICU life, right? When I talked to a counselor when I was in rehab, I, she has no idea. What you just went through. Right. Yeah. She's, she's, as far as I knew, she's just a counselor that deals with everyday issues and I would talk about things, you just nod her head and dots and things on the paper and that was it. Mm -hmm. It's like, do you really know what goes on in the ICU? Do you know what I've been through? <laughs> yeah. So that, I think it has to be somebody who's educated and has lived and worked in the ICU to understand it. Yeah, I've heard from survivors that when they talk to therapists and primary care providers on the other side, that yeah. they feel very misunderstood. Yeah. And yeah. sometimes they're not validated. Right. That they almost are treated like they're crazy or shouldn't feel that way. Yeah. And I think sometimes survivors feel like they can't talk about those things because they should just be grateful that they're alive. But Definitely it's okay to recognize that this changed your life. Yeah. 100%. Granted, your outcomes, to be able to be not only back to work, but now chief firefighter and doing all the physical things and the mental things, I mean, just where you're at a year later is 
incredible for an art survivor that required ECMO. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it changes your life. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I can imagine still dealing with, and I still have issues. You know, I'm not a hundred percent. I still have things going on, but I can't imagine dealing with still being on oxygen. You know, wearing it at night. Like I, I had to wear oxygen just for two months at night. You know, and I just finally got off my beta blocker, and right there was a milestone for me. Like, ah, finally got off this thing. So mm-hmm. I can't imagine those people that are still dealing with issues it would be such a mental draining thing yeah it's it's now that i'm interviewing survivors and hearing what it was like to have delirium for weeks to months and what their life was like after that um it's it's pretty insightful which makes your story even more amazing so thank you so much for sharing any other last thoughts Sure, I'll think of one tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So can I. I I love it, and I just feel so honored to be with you. And thank you for your vulnerability and sharing those deeply personal and hard things. Um, But we need your insight. So thank you for sharing and being willing to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having us. If you want to join in on the conversation, leave a voicemail at eight zero one seven eight four zero four seven two. Or reach out to me on Twitter. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com. <laughs>